economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today for this ninth episode in the special election series, and the first covering a non-European election, is Malu Gatto. Malu is an associate professor of Latin American politics at the Institute of the Americas at University College London. She's currently a visiting fellow at the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Her work explores questions about political behavior, representation, policymaking, and gender and politics with a regional focus on Latin America, especially Brazil. Today, we will discuss the context, results, and consequences of the Brazilian presidential elections, which were held on October 2nd and 30th this year. Welcome to the podcast, Malu. Thank you for the invitation. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? So the first sports team I've ever supported was Bahia Football Club, which is a team from my home state of Bahia in Brazil. And for many years, it was just all about the football. But in recent years, the club started essentially running many pro-diversity campaigns. And now I'm working with them doing a series of studies, which is pretty cool. That is very cool. Second, what is your favorite political song? There are many, but in the last week, in the week heading up to the second round of the elections, you know, the song that was on repeat on my Spotify was a song called Apesar de Você, which was written by the Brazilian singer Chico Buarque in 1978 during the military dictatorship in Brazil. And the song had come back during the Bolsonaro government years, and so it was re-recorded by a number of bands, and the version that I was listening to was by this band called Francisco Alombre, but One of the things that was really interesting about the song is that the main line is, you know, apesar de você amanhã há de ser outro dia. So, in spite of you, tomorrow will be another day. So that's what I needed to be listening to on the week ahead of the election. <laughs> It seems a very appropriate song. Finally, what is your favorite political book? I think the book that has marked me the most for a while was a book called The Country of Women. El País de, la, de las Mujeres uh, by the Nicaraguan feminist novelist um, Joconda Belli. It grapples with the question of what would happen if women completely took over the government in, in a specific country. And I like this book because as someone who studies women's political representation, I think that it ends up tackling lots of the questions that we as political scientists end up tackling in our own work about, you know, would a government be different if women actually ran it? Right. In 2018, Jair Bolsonaro shocked the country and the world by defeating Fernando Haddad, the last-minute stand-in for former President Lula da Silva, who had been barred from running. Can you give us a very concise rundown of the Bolsonaro presidency? I'll do my very best to summarize what has happened in these four years, but it was a lot. Every day it just felt like you know a new crisis was unfolding. Right after Bolsonaro was elected, Wendy Hunter and Timothy Power wrote this piece in which they talk about Bolsonaro's rise as having been facilitated by what they call the perfect storm, meaning that there were many crises taking place at the same time. And so here's a corruption crisis, an economic crisis, a crisis of public safety, as well as a crisis of representation that was, you know, essentially distrust in political parties and elite. 
And Bolsonaro presented himself as someone who could tackle each one of these crises. Now, it's questionable whether he has indeed been able to tackle any of these issues. One of the first things he did was to nominate Sergio Moro, who was the lead judge of the car wash investigation, to his Ministry of Justice, trying to essentially signal his commitment to tackle corruption, right? Now, during his time in office, there were various allegations of cases of corruption involving both Bolsonaro as well as other members of his family. And Moro himself stepped down as Minister of Justice after Bolsonaro sought to interfere with police investigations. Now, now, you know, judges is an alley of Bolsonaro again, so that's a whole other story. But during this government, that was part of what was going on. When it comes to the economy, Bolsonaro nominated Paul Gadges, who had recognition of some of the main political elites and economic elites. Paul Gadges is an economist and was a co-founder of, you know, an investment bank in Brazil. And, you know, again, whether the economy has improved or not has been in the debate, particularly in the months leading up to the election. There is indication that the economy improved, particularly, you know, since September. But Brazil still faces high levels of inflation and a return of poverty in spite of higher government expenditure in conditional cash transfer programs in particular. Bolsonaro also had this strong rhetoric on being tough on law and order, and his military background also conveyed that he would be a good bat on that. Now, Bolsonaro's main policy when it comes to public safety has been to facilitate the purchase of firearms. And although homicide rates have declined during his presidency, you know, criminologists argue that this is not necessarily a product of any government policy, even though, you know, Bolsonaro, of course, claims that it does, that, that essentially this is a product of what he's done while in office. When it comes to like this crisis of representation, Bolsonaro said that he wouldn't do politics as it was previously done. And what he meant by that, to a large extent, was essentially engaging in coalition politics. And so Brazil has a highly fragmented party system. In 2018, there were 30 parties that were elected to Congress meaning that the president's party always has a minority of seats in office. And so you have to build coalitions. Bolsonaro said he wouldn't do that, but he still had to give in to congressional leaders, arguably much more than any other president. I think that there are three other things that are worth mentioning. Bolsonaro was a COVID denialist and almost 700,000 people died due to COVID in Brazil. Deforestation also increased under Bolsonaro and anti-environmental actors felt empowered during his government. And the government also had a dismal performance when it comes to protection of human rights. So 94% of the budget to tackle violence against women was cut. And the Ministry of Women, Family and Human Rights spent less than half of its budget on all issues, right? And so that's just an example of how Bolsonaro didn't prioritize the protection of human rights during his government. So Bolsonaro came to power with the broad support from the economic, the media, and the right-wing political elite. But as you already indicated, he brought some people in from other parties, but many left later. How much of that support did he still have going into this year's election? I would say that Bolsonaro has largely maintained the support of the economic elite. So if you look at the biggest predictors of electoral support for Bolsonaro, income was back in 2018 and in 2022 continues to be a key factor. But during his government, Bolsonaro was always incredibly hostile to journalists. And so he ended up losing the support of some of the key players that backed his candidacy or at least that were 
let's say like anti-Lula in 2018. And this includes some of the, you know, major news channels like TV Global. But this also meant that essentially other news channels that weren't previously very popular became popular among Bolsonaro supporters and that he himself created channels to communicate with his supporters, including through YouTube and social media. Now, as to the right-wing political elite, it's a bit more complex. Bolsonaro managed to gain the support of what we call the Centrão in Brazil, which the translation would largely be, you know, the big center, but more than centrist on the ideological spectrum, these would be parties that are physiological rather than programmatic. So what were the key issues then going into the election? I guess you'd think that this would be an easy question to answer, but it's not super clear, right? And so for the first time, you had two candidates with a track record in the presidency competing against each other. So you have Lula, who had been president before, and then Bolsonaro, who was the incumbent. What this also meant is that these were two people who had high levels of rejection rates. So the first round was really marked by essentially candidates' efforts to highlight their own track records in the presidency and to criticize their opponents' records rather than give an emphasis on specific policy areas. You know, the economy was always in the background, but more in the sense of what Lula had done and what Bolsonaro had done in their respective presidencies. And then certain policy areas were emphasized, but to the extent that they were relevant to criticizing each other. And so Bolsonaro would emphasize corruption or threats to religious values in order to try to undermine Lula. And Lula would emphasize Bolsonaro's dismal performance when it comes to COVID and also environmental protection. And so these were the issues, but more because of what they represented in terms of this rejection of both candidates. Right. And I assume that that only increased in between the two rounds when it was between Lula and Bolsonaro. So what we know now is that Lula won with a very tight margin after already a somewhat surprising first round. Can you summarize what were the key takeaways from both rounds and particularly what, if anything, surprised you about it? So in the first round, I would say that what was really surprising was that, you know, the polls largely undermined the strength of Bolsonaro, both in terms of like the presidential election, as well as when it comes to his party winning seats in Congress. And so I think that that was a big one because it shaped the way in which the campaign in the second round took place. You know, Bolsonaro has largely employed this rhetoric that the system is against him, right? And so here you think the media, the judiciary, but also polling companies. And so when the polls undermined Bolsonaro's support in the first round, in a way this legitimized his claim that the system was anti him, and that gave fuel and, and a momentum to his campaign in the second round. I think that one thing to mention is that the presidential elections are not the only elections taking place, right? And so there were also legislative and gubernatorial elections. One thing to mention is that party fragmentation went down from 30 to 23 parties, but the Congress is more conservative than in 2018. Bolsonaro's party is the largest party in Congress. And many of Bolsonaro's loyal supporters, including the former Minister of Justice and the Minister of Human Rights, Senator Bolsonaro, won seats in Congress. 
But there was also, you know, a small increase in the proportion of seats occupied by women, which went up to 18%, and it was 15% before, and that's, you know, Brazilian record. Brazil also, you know, Brazil also elected four indigenous women and two trans women, and Afro-Brazilians now occupy 26% of the seats, up from 24% of the seats. You know, it's also worth highlighting these gains. Absolutely. Now, before we talk about what the consequences of that are for the future Lula presidency, I think a lot of people outside of Brazil, and perhaps even within Brazil, were asking themselves, how is it this close? How can someone like Bolsonaro, who denies COVID, how does he come back? Because during COVID, he was 20% behind. What explains this? Is this support for Bolsonaro or is this dislike of Lula? I think that this is something that a lot of people are still grappling with, including political scientists who study Brazil. I think that there are a few things here to consider. One is the fact that Bolsonaro was the incumbent and that incumbents tend to have an advantage when they are running for re-election. Bolsonaro is the first president to not win the election in Brazil. So that's a big deal, right? Even though he had all of this support, it's a big deal that he lost. The second thing to keep in mind is that Bolsonaro also used the state machinery during the electoral period in order to try to increase his electoral support. And so he increased benefits, he lowered the price of gas in an effort to essentially, you know, showcase to the Brazilian public that the economy wasn't very badly and that the government was, you know, responding to the rise in inflation, etc. But I think that there are a few other things here to consider, which do have to do with what Bolsonaro represents, especially in a race against the PT and Lula himself. Anti-PT partisanship is still very strong, right? And so this anti-corruption rhetoric, fear of communism. But I think that this also speaks to a broader fear of class threat, right? It's not that economic elite loss during the Lula years, but that there was a relative loss when it comes to status or the monopoly of certain social goods, right? And so we saw for the first time in Brazil's history, you know, the composition of public universities changing. And so you had more Afro-Brazilians coming to university you had essentially reduction of poverty and consumption patterns changing across the country. And so I think that this class threat was was one aspect of it that fuels anti-PT partisanship as well. The second thing is this morality-focused rhetoric, right? And so there has been uh, important social demographic changes that have happened in Brazil in the last decades. And evangelicals are now 30% of the Brazilian population. And that has played an important role both during the campaigns, but also in the behavior of voters during this election. And then third is this emphasis on militarism by a certain sector of Bolsonaro supporters and this perception that Lula is in favor of human rights and human rights here being understood as in favor of criminals, quote unquote, right? Right. So you already indicated that on the one hand, it's a big thing that Bolsonaro lost because he's the first incumbent to lose. On the other hand, while Bolsonaro himself lost, many of his allies, and actually both his sons, are still represented. 
looking at it from a broader perspective, taking into account Congress and governors, has the power truly shifted? Or is it now that the federal power shifts to Lula, but at the state level and the Congress level, the power has shifted a bit more towards Bolsonaro? I think that's a really good question. And it's a question that we're still trying to figure out. I think, you know, one thing that was perhaps surprising in the second round of the elections as well, but even before then, is Lula's effort to build a very broad coalition of supporters. And I would say that perhaps the biggest loser of Bolsonaro's win in 2018 and since then was the center right. And we see that, you know, Lula's vice president was one of the core members of the center-right party, the PSDB. And then, you know, the third runner-up, who's also a member of the center-right, also became one of the biggest supporters of Lula during the second round of the campaign. And so what you see is this alignment of forces around Lula and the expectation that essentially Lula will govern with this wider front. It's, it's going to be a less of a left-wing government than it was in 2003. But I think that what that speaks to is precisely of the strength of the far right in Brazil, right? And so you see that basically everyone from the rest of the political spectrum has had to come together to support Lula. And then you still have a significant share of seats that are being occupied by people from the more extreme of the right. So when we're talking about the far right in Brazil, we focus a lot on Bolsonaro. But at the same time, Bolsonaro brought together a lot of different coalitions. You've talked about the evangelicals, There's also a more traditional, just conservative elite. Then there is this new kind of more classic far right that's in the street and that's concerned about, as you said, status loss. The three biggest states in Brazil will have an ally as their governor. But how homogenous or how integrated is the far right? Because it's not the same as here, for example, in the US, where you have at least a Republican Party, which is not as homogenous a party as, let's say, the Front National in France or something, but it is still one party. This is not necessarily the case in Brazil, right? When we talk about this Bolsonaro alliance, it really is an alliance of different different organizations with different strongholders. Exactly. You're exactly right. And so essentially, when I was earlier on talking about why is it that Bolsonaro was still able to have such a high level of support right in the second round and in the first round, of course, is, is that his support is coming from different groups of people. And so essentially, his supporters are a heterogeneous group for whom, as individuals, certain elements of what Bolsonaro represents might be stronger or weaker, right? And so we have here evangelicals, we have here the more traditional economic elite, and we also have this more authoritarian and militaristic sector of supporters. As you said, essentially, governors who are aligned with Bolsonaro have also won in very important state. But one of the things that we weren't sure of what would happen is whether these allies would recognize the win of Lula. And even though Bolsonaro hasn't yet essentially acknowledged the result of the presidency, 
his allies, including successful gubernatorial candidates, have now acknowledged that Lula has won and have declared that they will work with the federal government. Yes, and even one of his sons kind of at least implicitly acknowledged the result, which is important, as you say. Now, you said that the center-right is one of the losers. It might be a little bit too strong, but you could also argue that the left is also a bit a loser of this election because Lula has been pretty explicit saying this is not going to be another PT presidency. He has made it very clear that he's not so much going to govern as a leftist, but he's going to govern in a sense as a Democrat. In that sense, the opposition was not between right and left in the classic sense, but it was almost increasingly like a centrist Democrat versus the far right. So what do you expect of the Lula presidency? He has promised to a certain extent to bring Brazil back to the golden days of his first presidency. But of course, we're in a different Brazil and a different world now. Yes. And so, you know, Lula came into power in 2003, and now it's going to be 20 years later. And 2023 will not be 2003, right? And in part because of what you just said, that Lula owes to this ample front, right? To all of these actors that supported him during the campaign, to essentially govern not only for his party, but for all of these other parties and political actors that have supported him. And his vice president is an indication of that. And in Lula's first speech, in his victory speech, he did already give signs that he will essentially keep some of the people who have supported him during his campaign in office, and that that will be a more centrist government. He has also said that he will not run for office for a second time, right? And so essentially that he will be now a one-term president, which I think that also indicates that essentially his main goal is to restore the status of Brazilian democracy as it was before Bolsonaro came into power. I do agree that the left camp also lost, and particularly in terms of what it's going to be able to do, right, when Lula comes into office. But back in 2018, there was this expectation that the Workers' Party, like that Lula's party, would disappear. And that's not something that we're seeing at all. The party is still very much holding supporters and being able to elect people to Congress and to other positions, including to gubernatorial positions as well. Now, you pointed out there's an element of status loss that brings a certain group of Brazilians to Bolsonaro, and you spoke particularly in terms of class. But Bolsonaro and his entourage has also been obsessed with sexuality and with gender, and to a bit lesser extent race, although implicitly it's still there, I would argue. What can we expect in those terms? Because in his first presidency, Lula was definitely a very progressive president although perhaps not as progressive as many would have wanted to, right? But with the fact that he now leans on a relatively centrist to center-right coalition, can we expect anything in those terms, or is it simply preventing the damage that Bolsonaro would have done in the second term? I think it's very much of the latter. I think that when Lula speaks about rebuilding Brazil, He's speaking about essentially restarting, very much 
you know, redoing some of the things that were done back in 2003. And I think that this teaches us that, you know, I think that after Lula's two terms and then Dilma's first term in office, there was this idea that we were moving forward and that advances would be linear, right? And I think that one of the things that we learned in this process is that that's not the case at all. <laughs> and that essentially we will have to rebuild in a lot of fronts. I think that Lula has had to make promises, particularly in you know this cultural or like moral front, whatever you want to call it, that his government wouldn't be very progressive, right? But I would expect that there would be, you know, investment in some core areas that are less controversial, such as, for example, the protection of women against violence, right, which is something that people from across the ideological spectrum are Mm -hmm. uh, less likely to oppose. And so I I do think that there are some important areas that we will see a return to investment and, and so forth. Yeah, I guess it's all about the bar, right? (laughs) So finally, what would you think is the greatest misunderstanding about Brazilian politics? I think that's a really great question. I would say that perhaps it's about how federalism or perhaps how the presidency works in Brazil. I think that because Brazil is a presidential system, People tend to compare Brazil to the U.S. quite a bit. But the Brazilian presidency works because it has a highly fragmented party system and a very strong presidency. You know, the Brazilian presidency operates more similarly to a multi-party parliamentary system than to the U.S. presidential system. So I think that that perhaps is the one big misunderstanding about Brazilian politics. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Malu. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and to be able to talk about Brazilian elections. So you can find out more about Malu Gato on her website, www.malugato.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at, at Malu Gato. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Portland.